You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, this evening we turn our attention again to Titus. So please turn with me if you have a copy of the Bible. To Titus, if you are looking at a pew Bible, it is on page um, 998. We're looking at Titus 2 this evening. We're looking at a, a decent-sized chunk, these first 10 verses. This book is written by the Apostle Paul to his apostolic representative, Titus. He's a minister, a fellow minister of the gospel, who Paul left on the island of Crete to minister to this fledgling church, these new Christians, these new congregate, congregations there in Crete. So he's, Paul is encouraging Titus to be faithful in ministry in the light of this highly pagan culture that they find themselves in. Let's hear now the reading of God's word. We're reading from Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So hear now God's inerrant, inspired word. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound, in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. As a kid, I was fascinated by ant farms, and I wanted one of those ant farm kits for home, you know, with the plastic uh, glass, the plastic uh, viewing you can see of of the ants working hard in, in this dirt colony. You can see them moving about, and it was always fascinating for me. I never had one, but at school and at friends' homes, I love to study these ants, see what they're doing, because from a distance, they're just running around like crazy. They're moving around. It seems haphazard. But when you zoom in and, and look at the individual ants, you realize each ant is, has, a, has a task. He's taking food from here to there. He's digging a burrow over this way. He's moving the, the debris out to the top. There's something that they're all doing. And though it looks like confusion, there's really order in this ant community. I think this is something like the kind of order that Paul's calling our little community to as well. Although from a distance, it might look haphazard. It might look like people are going left and right and and this way and that way. There's a real order to the community of Christians. In chapter one, Paul laid down the first thing, the first uh, set of orders in the church, and that is to appoint elders, to have leaders. There's no order without leaders, without somebody who is, is warding off the, the, the wolves, one who is calling us to faithfulness. And so elders are the first order of business for Titus to appoint. 
But then in chapter two, we come to this second, uh, second way to bring order to the church. And here he's teaching church members how they are to live in community and before a watching world. So every single member has a role in bringing order to the church. We're all called to something. So everybody today, whether you're a kid, whether you're older, there's something here for you in God's word as we are all called to pursue the good of the church. What we see true here in the first century, these Christians in Crete, is also true for us as well. And as we read this, this this passage is basically all what we would call law. It's all commands and directions. It's telling us to do something. And as we come to passages like this, we always have to be careful to treat it appropriately. Because Paul's not here saying, do these things and then you are a Christian. Do these things and then you've earned your salvation. You've become good enough. No, we don't do this to earn our way into God's favor. But what Paul is calling us to do here, it flows out of the fact that God has made us new creatures. We are now part of the new creation, and this is new creation living that Paul is instructing us. And so we must begin with the gospel of Jesus Christ, renewing us, making us a new community. And in light of that, we can now look at these wonderful commands as we seek to bring order and flourishing to God's people. Paul gives us two directions in this passage briefly that, that provide some of the, the, back, the backbone, the two reasons uh, for why he gives these commands. He gives us the backbone, why, sh- why we should obey. And the first is this. The first reason is that it accords with sound doctrine. He says this in chapter two, verse one. Living in such a way accords with sound doctrine. And this is what I was just saying a few minutes ago, right? When we look at sound doctrine, we begin with God, the creator, and mankind and their rebellion against God. But God, making us new creatures, we're to live now in a new, new way. We're to live in light of our status as sons of God. And so this is what accords with sound doctrine. Living in such ways, we're pursuing one another in our community and building up one another. So this accords with sound doctrine. But the second reason Paul gives for this instruction, these, these directions, is that He's concerned about the impact of the behavior of Christians on the world around them. Specifically, he's concerned in verse five that the word of God would not be reviled. Maybe others who see Christians living out of accord with what we profess. God's word would be reviled. You Christians aren't being consistent. You Christians aren't living out what you believe. Or in verse 10, he says, We should do this so that we adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, before a watching world. He does not want the gospel to be defamed in the world, as he says in verse 8. So these things are essential and important because the world is watching. The world looks and knows how we live. Jesus even says, the world will know you are disciples by how you love one another. And this is an epitome of that in our passage today, how we love one another. One another, and we see that a Christian community of order and obedience glorifies God, our Savior. A Christian community of order and obedience glorifies God, our Savior. Paul addresses four groups of people, and we're going to look at them uh, quickly. But we're looking, going to look at each of these four groups this evening. First, our ministers. Second, men. Third, our women, and the fourth, our bond servants. So let's look at first the ministers. 
And this is Paul's direction in verse two to Titus, this apostolic representative, this minister who's left on Crete at least for a time until they can raise up their own ministers or others are coming to serve the people there. But Paul tells this minister here, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And you notice this begins with but. He's, he's contrasting that with what came before in chapter one. In the end of chapter one, he spoke of the false teachers that will arise among the congregation. Those that need to be silenced and, and rebuked and not able to speak among God's people. But instead of that, instead of false doctrine, you, Titus, you ministers of God's word, teach what accords with sound doctrine, with healthy doctrine, with good doctrine. Teach that instead of allowing the wolves to come in. In verse seven and eight, he again returns to instructing Titus, where he calls Titus in all respects to be a model of good works and to have integrity, dignity, and sound doctrine in his speech. And so we see here both of these commands, we see both doctrine and conduct are essential for a minister. Both word and deed, both theology and life. These things must be wedded in a minister of the gospel. And this is something that the session of Redeemer must take extremely seriously right now as we are searching for an assistant pastor of youth ministry. Particularly in this role, he is a model to the youth. And we have to ask of each candidate, is this man a model that we want young men to become like? That we want our young women to learn from? Do his words and his life accord? Can his teaching be put to shame by an opponent? Or does he exemplify integrity and dignity and soundness in the way he speaks and teaches? These are serious matters. And I'm glad to report that our session does take them seriously. But pray for us in that. But this also doesn't just stop with the session. This is for all of us to hold your ministers and all of your elders to this standard of word and deed, of doctrine and life. And as I've said before, a humble rebuke of an elder is needed. And even if it's painful for a moment, it is greatly appreciated. Hold us and all of your elders to the standard. So ministers are called bringing order to God's church. So let's move to the second group here that Paul speaks of, and it's men. He addresses men in verses two and verse six. First with verse two, he speaks to older men. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. I love this picture he paints of the seasoned Christian older man who has seen much life and grown in great wisdom, who studied God's word for his lifetime, or as long as the Lord has shown him his grace. His faith must be stable. His faith must rest in good doctrine. His love must be pure. His love for his wife, his love for the church, his love for his family, his love for the world. He must grow in steadfastness. This is a beautiful picture of God sanctifying his people. And these older men are to be respected and held in honor. In our culture today, we prize and value youth. We hold up youth 
as the epitome of what it means to live. But Paul says, no, no, no. Youth has its wonderful benefits, but we prize the saints who've lived a lifetime in service to Christ. And this is what a godly older saint should look like. And so our older men are to to strive for this, to seek for this, be dignified and self-controlled, sober-minded in all things. This is the result of God's sanctifying work in them. But then in verse six, he he turns his attention to younger men. Now, I'm not going to tell you where that line is between older men and younger men. But younger men here, his simple command to them is to be self-controlled. In fact, he's calling Titus to come to these younger men and call call them to self-control. This is an all-encompassing exhortation to younger men. Every young man in this room, whether you're a child or whether you're a young man with with, who's married, with kids, if where, whoever you are, wherever you consider yourself to be a young man, hear this, you are called to be self-controlled. This indeed is the pitfall of youth today. Life is not about you. Life is not about your indulgences. Life is not about you pursuing that which you want to do ultimately. Life is about Self-control, why? For the purpose of glorifying God. How you can serve others instead of serving yourself. How you can control your own self in service to your creator, God, your savior. And it takes a lifetime of cultivating and developing self-control. And this has impacts in all realms of our lives. The necessity of self-control is spoken of here. It's interesting how Titus is, though, called to teach these young men, right? This is a handbook, really, for for Titus, this minister. How is he to minister to these people? He's to call young men. In fact, he's to urge young men to be self-controlled, to speak to them and exhort them and admonish them and encourage them. Hey, let's be self-controlled. Let us live in a way that glorifies God. And so Titus is called to build up the younger men with teaching. And he's even called in in verse seven to be their model. So we talked about earlier, the the life of the minister here is particularly with regard to younger men, to be an example for younger men, to teach younger men, to be a model of maturity and faith. And so both teaching with words and modeling through their lives is important. The younger men to look up to somebody. And as we'll see in a moment, Older women are called to teach younger women. And Paul doesn't command older men to teach younger men in the same parallel fashion. And I think that's possibly because there are officers in the church who do that kind of thing. Ministers and elders and and deacons. They have that natural responsibility on their shoulders in a way that that younger women don't have mentors of older women who are serving as officers in the church. So I think that's maybe one reason why women are particularly called to, to, to teach. But I don't think that means if you're not an officer in the church, you're off the hook for for caring for younger men in our congregation. Every older man in this church is called to care for the younger men in our congregation, to uh, uh, to come alongside them, to teach them, to encourage them, to instruct them. And so as we see in a few moments how older women are called to teach younger women, this also applies very directly to older men with younger men appropriate for you to do that as older men. 
Find younger men that you can encourage, you can help, you can invest in, you can be a blessing to. Because the church is not called to segregate our people in different corners. We're called to be one body together, intergenerationally. And we all grow as results. So men, older men, are an example of godliness. Younger men are called to cultivate self-control. And as the older men pour into the lives of the younger men. And then Paul turns to women in verses 3 through 5. And first, he highlights for older women what they are called to. And I think he's highlighting some matters in verse 3 of godly living that may be particular pitfalls of older women in that community. They're called here specifically to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. And of course, in all of these commands, there's, there's a heart issue here. Our behavior is a matter of our heart undergirding it. Because being irreverent begins with a prideful heart. Slandering begins with not loving a brother or sister. Being a slave to wine can begin with a myriad of motivations and desires that need to be recalibrated. We all need a heart that is shaped by the gospel of grace to live this out. And so the older women are called to be godly to exemplify godliness. And so here we have that pattern of life where they're called to exemplify what it means to be a mature believer. But women are also called to teach as well. Verse three, teach what is good. Women are called to teach. Now, scripture does not teach that women may be elders in Christ's church, but that doesn't mean that women are not essential to the life of the church. There's many biblical examples of women teaching. That's just one facet in which women serve the church. But here, the teaching is directed at younger women. Younger women, older women are called to teach younger women. This is a universal command to all older women. Again, I'm not saying where that line is. I don't think scripture says what that line is. But women of age, women of maturity, women of experience, you are called to teach younger women. It is your God-given duty women who've walked down the road of life, women who've gained wisdom, who've grown in their faith. I've heard from younger women in our church who crave your influence in their life, whether they're in middle school or high school or, or college, students who need to know that they're loved and supported by somebody outside of their own immediate family, or whether it's someone who's single, trying to navigate relationships and their hopes and dreams for their lives, whether these women are newly married and have questions about how to live with this new man in their lives, how to build a home with him, how to think about and to, to work towards resolving pervasive and common sexual problems in marriage that we don't hear talked about all that often. Whether these are women with young children and need advice, maybe they simply need an hour away to get groceries or just encouragement. As their children grow, they need continued support and wisdom older women, you are needed in the church to serve them. They crave it. I've heard women in our, uh, as we interview them for membership, I need older women in my life. They desire you. And I know that probably many are thinking, oh, I'm not qualified for this. I don't know what to do, but I know, I guarantee that the Lord has given you much that you can share with younger sisters your experience, your life, 
The gospel itself, we so need reminding of that in the midst of the grind so you can apply the gospel to the lives of younger women. Sometimes this is formalized in churches with programs and and maybe there's helpful things that could be done there, but I think this is best done when each individual woman and man takes this mantle themselves and picks it up and says, I'm going to find one or two or three others in this church I want to pray for, that I want to encourage, I want to come alongside of, I want to teach. When we live it out that way, this organic way as it rises up from us, from the congregation, this is a wonderful thing for the church. What a wonderful culture that creates as we all are striving, striving for godliness and and holiness grounded in the gospel. We need you, older men and older women. The church needs you. In these instructions, he does tell younger women how they are to live. This is a general call to godliness under the guidance of these older women particularly. And so younger women, I, I encourage you to pursue older women, to ask them questions, to ask them to be there for you. I just want to highlight a few things that Paul says here. First in verse four, uh, the older women are directed to train the young women to love their husbands and children. I love uh, really a a more wooden translation of this. Uh, Really where it it says uh, to be husband lovers and children lovers. It's really how the Greek is, is formed there. To be this, not just to do this, but to be a husband lover and a child lover. It's a wonderful statement because this is a learned skill. This is not mere emotion and sentimentality because women need to go somewhere and men need to go someplace to ask, why is it so hard to love my spouse right now? We need someone who can pour into us and to encourage us in those difficult moments. And this emphasizes the first calling in the lives for married women is to love their husbands love their children. Verse five, Paul also notes that they are to be working at home. Be self-controlled, pure, working at home. I think it's worth a note here that this does not mean only working at home. I think we can look at even Proverbs 31, where this excellent wife is involved in industry even outside the immediate home. For most of history, the wife has been involved alongside her husband in farming the family land and raising the family animals, and working the family business, helping to provide for the family's needs. And this command emphasizes, though, the point of this is that there's a priority of the family over all other pursuits of a wife and even a husband. It doesn't mean that the wife can't go and work outside the home, but it does mean that doing so needs to be done thoughtfully and carefully for the good of the whole family. I think also scholars point out, biblical commentators point out, that this might be an attempt to correct some cultural proclivity of younger women. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul speaks of younger widows, so younger women whose husbands have died. He says the culture is teaching them to be idlers. They're going about from house to house. They're not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So instead of this going around from house to house, being busybodies, being gossips, Paul is saying, instead of that, your first priority should be your own home. 
work at your home. That is your first priority. Not going house to house, not being a gossip, not being a busybody. Your own home is where you should put your first sweat and tears. This is what you should invest in, not being a busybody elsewhere. So this is an overall call to love family and in every way to grow in godliness under the instruction of older and godly women. So as Paul's addressed ministers, men and women, he concludes by addressing bondservants. There's much too little time to address the issues of slavery in the Greco-Roman and Jewish cultures. And I've addressed them in places before at other times, and I'm happy to talk more about it. But there's a distinction between the kind of slavery, or as the ESV translates, bond servanthood, that was practiced in the first century, and that, would, that which would later be practiced in Europe and America 1,500 years later. There's a distinction between these types of slavery. Often in the first century, individuals would sell themselves into an indentured servitude of sorts. For a period of time, they sold themselves as bond servants to pay off a debt or to provide for their family. And really, I think in this arrangement, there's lots of parallels to employment today. Although I would say our employment system is far more just than this bond servanthood system of ancient Greco-Roman culture. Having said all that, slaves in the first century had a reputation. They had stereotypes for being thieves and stealing, for working against their masters, for sneaking around behind their backs. And Paul's command here to these bondservants is saying, no, don't do that. You're not to steal from your master. You're not to take from him. You're not to work against his interests. You're to support him. Doesn't mean you're to willingly submit to brutalizing treatment or abusive behavior, but when their commandments are lawful, servants are to submit, just as employees are called to submit to their own superiors at work. This is a hard, uh, a difficult command, especially in the most difficult of employment situations. But this is part of the order of God's people. As the world is watching us, are we serving others or are we making it about ourselves? We see here a need and the fruits of order. Order in the church brings a sense of direction for all of us. We all, on the basis of this passage, now have something to do. We now are called to something. And it leads to greater health of the church. And there is a lot here of responsibility put on the shoulders of every Christian. There is individual responsibility here. Am I going to be a younger man pursuing self-control? Am I going to pursue my own passions, my own sinful proclivities? Every person in the church right now is addressed by Paul's teaching here. And we all have ways to grow. We all have ways to serve one another. So in light of these commands, let's do them with grateful hearts. Let's do this rooted in, as, as Paul concludes this section, let's do this in light the doctrine of God, our Savior. We don't begin obedience by looking at the work to be done. We begin obedience by looking at God, our Savior. We begin our obedience by looking at the one who has saved us and rescued us from sin and misery and death. We begin putting our hand to the plow and serving one another because look what Christ has done for me. A response to what Christ has done is a response of gratitude a desire, a true earnest desire to honor God and to love Christ's church. 
It can't, we can't fabricate that desire in any way other than looking to God himself, looking to his grace for us in Jesus Christ. And so this call to order in Christ's house, this call to serving one another, to teach and to listen, to serve one another, this is based upon the grace of God. And so these commands now are sweet. These commands are beautiful because now we get to know how we can walk out a life of holiness and godliness because we sit adoring God, our Savior. We see that we're sinners. We see that there's no reason in the world God would have elected us from before the foundation of the world. But he did out of his love and his mercy. And now, having been the recipients of this great mercy, knowing that God, our Savior, has saved us from sin and misery, we now can serve our neighbor. We now can grow in truth that accords with godliness. So yes, let's obey here. Let's commit to the community of God's people and the order that God has established. First and foremost, let's glorify. Let's exalt. Let's sit in the doctrine of God, our Savior. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.